Hello and welcome back to Broken Oars podcast and welcome back to part four of our Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Mystery of the Murdered Bow. This, as you will know, was written in honour of and to celebrate the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, which is coming up fast upon the horizon. And if you have listened to parts one, two and three, which I'm sure you have because they are recognised classics of the Holmes genre, Holmes and Watson who are at home at 221B Baker Street in their chambers, frousting, I believe the technical term is, were called to a Cambridge college by Inspector Lestrade. A young gentleman has killed himself. Holmes and Watson catch the train to Cambridge. They go to the college. They go to the rooms. They see the young man still there. Lestrade is convinced that it is suicide. A gun has been found. A single gunshot to the head has been administered. The room was locked. There was no one else in it, apparently. Holmes, however, is not so sure. He's looked around the room. He has discovered a priest hole, which could be something and might be nothing. He has discovered a button, which could be something and might be nothing. Either way, he is puzzled as to why a young man, well-liked with everything to live for, should take this course of action. And of course, if you have been listening, you will know that young Mr. Martin, the deceased, is or was a rower. And this is the only Sherlock Holmes story in the entire canon that features the noblest and the greatest of sports. So, was it self-murder, as Lestrade and Provost Oaks think, or is there something deeper and more sinister going on behind it? Let's listen and find out. The interviews did little to clarify matters. Everyone Holmes spoke to, with myself and Lestrade in attendance, said much the same thing. Mr. Martin was everything that he had been said to be. No one bore him any malice. He was well liked in college by his peers and his superiors. He worked hard. He attended chapel. There had been no issues with the porters regarding locking up times or fast or loose living. There were no reports of gambling or any note of hand. And when Holmes spread his net still wider and called in everyone with whom Mr. Martin held accounts with in the town, it turned out that Mr. Martin always paid promptly and cheerfully. These investigations took us through until mid-afternoon, and I found myself accompanying Holmes on a walk down to the college boathouse, where we had been assured that we would find Mr. Pittman, Mr. Martin's captain and president of the boat club. It was a pleasant walk after such a grim morning, but by now... As Holmes had noted, the news was out, and we found our passage remarked on. When we arrived at the right place on the cam, we found not one but two men busying themselves around a sleek wooden racing shell that had been propped on trestles. There was a strong smell of carnauba wax in the air, and it was clear that they had been polishing and checking it. The smaller of the two men looked up as we came in. Mr Holmes, Dr Watson, tell me it isn't true about George. Well, I don't know what you've heard, but if it's that he's dead... I'm afraid it is, said Holmes, keenly watching for the reaction of both. Damn it! Young fool, said the first. Why, oh, why? I just told him he'd won his seat in the boat of all of thee. He recovered himself and, coming forward, offered his hand. Freddy, he said. Freddy Pittman. Holmes shook his hand. Not the son of the esteemed writer to the signet. 
There's fame. The third, replied Pittman, smiling ruefully. I'm afraid third sons have a lot to live up to in this world. They do indeed, replied Holmes. I've met your father, a good man. And you are? Muttlebury, said the second figure, coming forward and offering his hand. Stanley Muttlebury. He was taller than Mr Pittman and broader too. Where Mr Pittman gave an impression of contained energy, Mr Muttlebury gave off a sense of latent power and athleticism. Both had the honest, lively faces of those who are regularly out and about outdoors. Most of us call them Muttle, said Mr Pittman. It saves time. Was it, uh, was it suicide, as they said, Mr Holmes? That's what I'm trying to find out, replied Holmes. Can you think of anyone who would do him harm? Who? George, replied Mr Muttlebury, looking surprised at the thought. Of course not. He was everything you want in a chap. Kind, honest, upright, fine oarsman. Which, which reminds me, interjected Mr Pittman, with your leave, Mr Holmes, I must go and tell Denby that he'll be needed for the boat race after all. Denby, said Holmes. Lord Denby, Lord Cavendish's son. Yes, nodded Pittman. We'll be travelling up to London tomorrow. We train on the tideway before the boat race. Forgive me, Mr Pittman, asked Holmes, but why do you need to travel up to London tomorrow when I am given to understand that your contest is not for another four weeks? Well, Mr Holmes, explained Mr Pittman, we train here on the Cam, but it's a very different river to the Thames with its tides and currents, so we generally head up to London about a month beforehand to allow us time to get to grips with it. We row out of Putney once we're in town. And your crew is decided before you travel? Well, yes, generally, Mr Holmes. The order might change somewhat, and occasionally the personnel. But you want a settled crew, if possible, for some time before. That gives you time to blend it and polish it. I see, said Holmes, nodding. And you decided to include Mr Martin? Why, yes, Mr Holmes. I, I'd only just told him on the night. Well, well on the night he died. Mr Pittman offered his hand again, adding, If there's anything else you need to ask me, or anything else you need to know about Joel, I mean Mr Martin, Mr Holmes, then come by and see me this evening. But I simply have to get the crew posted and the boat booked for London. If I don't catch Denby now, the chances are he'll have headed to London or home before I can. He's going to have to sit at bow instead of, well, Mr Martin, and we'll need every outing we can get. Holmes nodded, and Mr Pittman took his leave. Holmes examined the racing shell, a sleek song of speed rendered in wood and metal, before asking, I know little of the sport of rowing, Mr Muttlebury. Can you tell me what the attraction is? Is there not the cricket pitch or the rugby field for those who want glory? Mr Muttlebury laughed. There's precious little glory at 6am on a February morning when you have to break the ice from the river to get out and your hands freeze to your oars, Mr Holmes. So why do you do it then? Mr Muttlebury hesitated and I got the feeling that he was a man who was rather better with actions than words. However, he surprised me somewhat, as he then said, I rather think that rowers are called to the water, Mr Holmes. I know it sounds fanciful, but if it's in you, you find your way to the river, and once you're there, why, well, you're home. I wouldn't speak like this, but you need to understand what it means to be a rower, or to row for Cambridge. People think that we're big hearties, Mr Holmes, he went on. They, they don't see any of the flash or dash of a good three-quarter on the rugby field, or the grace of a late cut on a difficult wicket on the cricket pitch. If they see us at all, it's slogging up and down the river mile after mile. Yes, of course, they'll cheer on the day of the race, and they'll wave their scarves, 
and they'll probably end up in the cells somewhere, some of them. But most people in Cambridge have never been anywhere near a boat, unless it's a steamer to Margate, let alone moved one themselves. So they don't understand why it grabs some of us so hard. Enlighten me, Mr. Muttlebury, if you would, said Holmes. It may be that there is something in what you say that will help me to untangle this mystery. Well, first of all, it's because they don't understand what it takes to move a boat on flat water in still air, let alone on the Thames through London for four miles or more, every sinew and muscle screaming. Father Thames might sit in stone at the Port Authority, Mr. Holmes, but he's not gentle with you when you're on his river. Placing a scrap of paper on the stern of the boat, Mr. Muttlebury sketched out in pencil eight circles, representing eight bodies in a boat, and began to label them from stroke down, speaking all the while. You see, Mr. Holmes, it isn't just a question of us heaving on the oar, he said. Take stroke and seven. Stroke sets the rhythm, the tempo. He's like the conductor of the orchestra. Seven is like first violin. He reinforces stroke's rhythm and translates it to the rest of the boat. Six, five, four and three are called the meat wagon. The theory is that's where you put your heavy lifters. They have more freeboard than stern and bow pair, so some people think that maybe they're not as technically adept. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're like the pistons in a steam engine, taking their cue from stroke pair, but they fire in time with them, holding their length and their finish to send the boat through the water. And the last, the bow pair, said Holmes keenly. Well, some people laugh at them, Mr. Holmes, but I think they're the most important of all. A good bow pair will set up the boat every bit as much as stern pair. Yes, they're the furthest away, but they're closest to the bows and they have more leverage. If they're good and quick and clever with their hands, they'll take the catch a fraction ahead, take the weight of the whole boat so it feels light and lively for everyone else. You any idea how much an eight weighs, Mr. Holmes? This sort of calculation was meat and drink to Holmes. He eyed Mr. Muttlebury and said, I'd put you about thirteen four, thirteen three. Am I right, Mr. Muttlebury? Mr. Muttlebury nodded. And you'd be one of the heavier men in the boat, I assume, went on Holmes. So, let's say overall, three quarters of a ton, allowing the shell and oars. Very good, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Muttlebury. And all of us have to pick up our own body weight and the weight of our part of the shell and send it through water that doesn't want us to move with every stroke. And then we have to do it again and again and again until you're half dead and you can't remember your own name, but you keep going until the line or you'd never row again. It only works if everyone works not just together, but selflessly for everyone else. And young Mr. Martin did? Mr. Muttlebury hesitated slightly before answering. He did. Freddy will be able to tell you his reasoning better than I. I know it's been nip and tuck between him and Lord Denby all season. They're both good oars, and I know how much this meant for Lord Denby with his family history, and him off to the Argentine next autumn. But one of the jobs a captain has is to pick the boat that he thinks will win on the day. There's no sentiment in it. It's no easy job dashing some man's dreams, telling some chap who's been working all year for this that they aren't in. But the boat Freddy picked is the one that gives us the best chance. I stand by that, or I did, until I heard about Mr. Martin. Tell me one more thing, if you will, Mr. Mutterbury, said Holmes. The riggers are alternating. Is it normal for a rower to have a preferred side? Well, if you listen to our coach, he'll tell you that a good rower should be able to row off either hand, but most have a preference. If you're a stroke sider, your outside hand is your left, the inside the right. The inside hand squares and feathers, and the outside hand pulls through. If you're a bow sider, well, then it's the reverse. And could Mr. Martin row on both sides? Why, no, sir. 
He was a natural bowsider. I see. Thank you, said Holmes. You've been most helpful. And so the plot thickens, even if my violin playing doesn't. Did young Mr. Martin commit suicide, or is there something more sinister at play? And what do you think about Mr. Muttlebury's discussion of rowers and rowing? Is there something in that? Tune in for part five and find out more.